Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Hello there everybody, it's Kieran Murphy here. And listen, I won't keep you long. I'm just here to give you all a little taster of what we've been up to on the World Service this week. We've had a bull talking about the World Athletics Championships for a start, as well as the return of Jim McGuinness to the Donegal manager's job, and the extraordinary goings-on at the Spanish FA, which you'll be able to hear about on today's show if you become a World Service member now. It's just €5 a month plus VAT, depending on where you are in the world. So why don't you have a think about it? Go to secondhappens.com forward slash join, and you'll be able to hear all the shows from this week, all the shows from 10 years of podcasting, in fact, ad-free and without interruption. We'd love to have you along. Anyway, it was two fourth-place finishes for Kira McGeehan and Rashid Adeleke in their finals this week. But when we spoke to Dervil O'Rourke, herself a fourth-place finisher in a World Championship final, and athletics journalist non-parai Cahal Dennehy on Thursday, some of us still had lots to be positive about before we moved on to some very interesting conversations Cahal had been having in the mix zone in Budapest. I would you know, be very confident that both in her preparation and in the race itself, she'll look back at the last at that race and the last year and say, there is absolutely nothing else I could have done. And I think that's a huge comfort for someone like her when she's finished fourth. And as Derville mentioned, you know, that that might be the last of one or two or three opportunities, whatever, that that will come her way at a global medal. They're so rare. She'll probably get one more chance at most two at a world or Olympic medal. Um, so it's a very rare chance. And I think that will that will lessen the hurt she feels because she's like, look, I was ultimately beaten by three better athletes on the day. I don't know, Carl. <laughs> uh, is that how athletes think, Derville? I mean, it, that doesn't sound like any comfort at all. <laughs> I mean, that would to me. That to me says, I gave it my absolute best shot, and I've you know, like I ran the perfect race, and I still didn't get a medal. I mean, I, I like I, I know the point that Carl is making there, but it doesn't sound like a lot of comfort to me, Derville. Yeah, <laughs> funnily, I can come in on this with um coming in in it from a different position because I was fourth at a world outdoors in a national record. Um, and I'm not, I don't even like comparing it because I think what Kira did was absolutely spectacular against three of the greatest of all time. And but I do I do remember that so well, right? Because I think I actually think it was the best run of my career from where I was coming from at the time. And even though I knew it was the best run of my career and I knew I didn't have a lot more in me on the night, I've often, often had those like little moments. And someone sent me a message the other day, um, Carl will know, Deirdre Ryan, the high jumper, you know, who's a buddy of mine. And she just said, oh, I was listening to all the press leading up to this. And I was thinking about the difference between being fourth and fifth and being on a podium as an Irish athlete, the difference you are in people's memory 
and in the history of the sport and the position you hold she's like you know it's so close because she was in a global final I think she was fifth and she, so as much as Kira did everything right and that like that's I think a lot of why it was so amazing to watch you still I think as the athlete and the person in it try to go to sleep that night and the voices in your head start talking to you like they start saying but what if Hassan had made a mistake and what if Faith had done this and you start kind of going what if what the what if so I think when you're fourth it's better than fifth it's better than sixth it's better than seventh better than not being in a final still not third and it just means that those times where that legacy down the road where the medalists are referenced, you're not one of them. No one ever references fourth, really. And I think that I think that um, that hurts a little, maybe. But I also think you have to contextualize it, which she's done really well. And back to her post-race interviews where she's like, she just articulates all of the points so brilliantly. But I still think there's always the few. There has to be, has to be when you're fourth. There has to be a couple of what ifs. Yeah, Carl. You know, like the the I understand completely the point you're making, but it's it, when the opportunities are so few and far between, and as you say, she might only get like one or maybe two more, and she probably knows herself. She's in like an unbelievable vein of form at the moment. I mean, you know, for her to be in the sort of shape she's in now, going into uh, Paris next year, like so much has to go right. And, you know, like there is a lot of people being paid a nice amount of money to make sure that that, you know, all of that goes correctly. But, you know, she's only human. Injuries happen that, you know, it's it, this was an unbelievable chance for her. It was. And I suppose I, I'll probably qualify that point about the what ifs to say that, like, the obvious comparison here is Eamon Coughlin. You know, I was interviewing him recently about the 40th anniversary of his world championship win in 1976 Olympic final. He just looked back on and said, I made an absolute feck of that. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, in terms of tactically, he, he screwed up and he has carried that to this day and he always gets asked and it's always the big regret of his career. Um so yeah, at least I suppose Kira won't have that in terms of there's no obvious tactical error that or there's no obvious thing she could have done, I suppose, to have gotten that podium, even if she's probably still highly annoyed. But yeah, looking towards Paris, I mean, she's obviously in a great position. There's no reason. Kira is 31, but she's kind of more like a 27 year old, really, like, you know, in terms of like her mileage on the clock and um, because she missed so much of her early 20s. And that's why she's only now getting to her peak at the age of 31. No reason you can't be running personal bests at 32, 33, 34 these days, the 1500 runner, especially with her kind of late career progression with those missing years through injury. Um, the only problem is that Olympic year will see people come out of the woodwork again. Um, but what's positive for Kira, and this is, I think, a genuine positive, is that she is ex- competing in an event, and Derville alluded to this a while ago, that you look at the numbers of athletes who are there who can win a medal. And every single athlete at the moment in the women's 1500 looks at it and realizes, I can't win gold because the best 1500 meter runner of all time is in there. And so the gold medal is gone. And that's the reason Gudaf Segei, the Ethiopian, she would probably have won silver last night, I would say. Um, she's in the 5K and 10K. And she went, you know what? I'm going to do the 10K and the 5K. She'll probably win the 10K. She'll probably lose to Hassan or Kipiegon in the 5K. But she was like, I know I have zero chance in the 1500 of winning gold. She'll probably win silver. And that's why she went for the longer distances. And Hassan, I think, might be the same next year. You know, she's 
doing this lunacy with the triple like but she's Who obviously she doing trying quite to impress well. like i was i was getting so annoyed when i was reading about her uh, <laughs> schedule and the fact that she goes and nicks a bronze off kira yeah i know i think a lot of people irish people were looking at it when they saw hassan coming in that means if she's going for the triple that probably means she's in really good form and then if she's in really good form she's going to be in better form probably than Kira even with the fatigue of the race in her legs but you know it wouldn't surprise me she's going running the marathon as well Hassan might just go 5k 10k and marathon and possibly do the crazy Emil Zatopek treble at the Olympics next year because I think again she knows now she can't win gold at the 1500 and the 1500 has three rounds unlike the 5k 10k marathon so I think that sort of thing could benefit Kira whereby a lot of people some of the other athletes who might finish in front of her get scared away but like I said there's well, Teji, the Ethiopian who won the medal there the other night, she's not going anywhere. She's just moving up from 800. She's a really good athlete. And then there's Birka Hylam, an Ethiopian who's run 354. She's 17 years old. She flopped in the final, but she's definitely going to be back and better next year. So it's going to be just as hard, I think, if not harder, which is why for a lot of Irish people, they were like, oh, damn, that was such a great chance. Your 100 meters hurdles record is finally gone, Derval. Uh, tell us what it's really like. And you're not allowed to say records are there to be broken. You're, that's the one thing you're not allowed to say. Okay, okay. I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to say any of the practice things. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I'm devastated okay. is what I want to hear. How could she do this to yeah. me? Why did she steal this from me? <laughs> um, it's a really, genuinely, really weird one, right? Because of loads of things. Um, I am now 42. Um and I most certainly cannot lace up my spikes and give it a lash to try and get it back. <laughs> so you have that really funny side of you, that pro- side of me that possibly made me the athlete I was where I'm really competitive, you know, but I can't run fast to save my life now, you know, like, so like it, you, you go like, you have to just have it because I can't do anything about it. Just take it. So you're um, admitting defeat. So you're, that, you're laying down your arms. I'm admitting like, that's like, it. I'm You're not even going to put up a fight. A better, <laughs> I can't even fight for it, you know. And I'm in I'm in West Cork at the moment. And um, I got a message last night from someone saying to me, um, right, we're in the square. The hurdles are out. Let's get this thing back, you yeah. know. And I just had to say, we can't. We can't. I'm well beyond it. I, I can't fight for it. <laughs> uh, you have to have it. Um, but it's funny, like, Sarah's career has been, it's been such a different career to my career and I I always look back at my career and I feel like I had no pressure from expectation um because there wasn't really a huge maybe history in the 100 hurdles before I did it and I think that record meant a huge amount to to Sarah which I possibly underestimated till I saw some of her interviews last night because I don't like she ran she ran a 12-7 recently and I messed her saying I, I genuinely think you could have run 12-5 tonight like and I did the night she ran and I think last night actually her 12-62 I think it was actually a 12-5 she hit a hurdle I think she actually has about another tenth in it and but I suppose the record is there for her in a way maybe that it wasn't for me so I didn't have the same gravitas on it but then obviously now that it's gone you're like Eric, that was nice and I had 20 years at it because I broke it in 2003 and now we're 2023. So yeah, I, just, I can't fight. I can't fight her for it. And I think if someone, if someone's going to take it, she's very deserving. And I think she'll make it way faster, which is what you want to see. Yeah. And you must have been absolutely delighted for her though, in all seriousness, after the year she's had, it's been yeah. uh, incredible. Oh, like genuinely, right. And I cannot, 
fathom what she has coped with off track. I can't, you know, um, I can't. I honestly can't. And this is the loss to of, her, together, love not, of her boyfriend, Craig Breen. Um, yeah, it's yeah. just it's it's just such a such a, a horrific thing to have to to go through. And the way that she's she's kind of ran through it, I, it it kind of beggars belief in ways, doesn't it? The mental fortitude required. See, I always think there's sport and then there's life, you know, and sport isn't life. It's a really lovely thing that some of us have the privilege of doing as a kind of job, even though it never feels like a job. And that's real life. Like her, her losing her partner, the shock of it, just a lot. The life loss is, I, I, I genuinely can't. And even when it happens, I just thought, how, how do you cope? Like, how do you, how do you cope and actually stand in front of 10 hurdles and get over them? But not only do that. And she did that quite quickly after he, after he passed away, she went to diamond league, I think in Doha. And I remember watching thinking, you know, how, 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 basically, how has she managed to have that mental capacity to put one foot in front of the other? And the only thing I can imagine is the people around her, what she's taken from, from him. And so, yes, it is incredible. And just, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a very emotional thing. And so, yeah, you know, on a serious note, it's going like, it's going to a brilliant home, but outside of the, you know the personal loss and the tough time she's had and the way she's done it in such an incredible capacity this year, she deserves it. She's put in ten solid years at this event. I've watched them all, and she's grown into an extraordinary competitor. And she is one of a handful of the best hurdlers in the world. That's the reality. She just happens to be doing it at a time where there's lots of them, and it's very very deep. It's very competitive, but she's holding her own. So. She was, a little stat for you, she was the only hurdler who ran a personal best in the semi-finals last night. Like, imagine that. Like, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, and, you know, she doesn't clip hurdle nine. Carl, she could have a world, uh, world final to be looking forward to. Yeah, I mean, she was joint 10th her time last night. Um, So, yeah, she, it's so exciting looking towards, Par- you know, Paris Olympics. There's no reason she can't now go away and think, you know, I can run. I mean, she can definitely run in the 12 fives, but, you know, they've got to be thinking her and her coach, Noel Morrissey, why not even in the 12 fours next year, which maybe that will be what it takes. But yeah, just to add to Derville's point, you know, I suppose I, I've known Sarah, like she was a club mate of mine at Emerald AC, you know, um, wearing those colours with far more pride than I ever did going back 20 years or so since I first got to know her. And um, just, I was out at some of the meets on the circuit where she was racing in like Hengelo and Holland and Turku in Finland. And just as she was starting back racing kind of in early June, just after that one in Doha. And, you know, before we sat down for a kind of on the record interview, we kind of had a lot of chats over dinner and, you know, Sarah was very honest about this. She wouldn't mind me sharing it, but like, I remember her, me and Thomas Barr sitting around at dinner and both me and Thomas were kind of saying like, it's just, it's remarkable what you're doing like and how strong, like the fact you're able to come here. And, and then Sarah kind of said to us, look, I, I, I it, it's, I'm grand on the surface and I'm grand down here eating dinner with you guys, but I'm going to go back to my room now and bawl my eyes out, you know, and that's what it's like every night. Um, and every time she said like, it, it would just break your heart to have listened to because, you know, she said like the, the worst thing was before she went to the stadium for every race, she would call Craig first time after she got back to the hotel after every race, she would call Craig. And then she was like, those were the moments it hits you because you're like, I can't call him anymore. He's not there. And yeah, to have soldiered on, like if she was running 13 seconds, you would say, wow, 
what an inspiration Sarah Levin is um, to be running faster than she's ever run, carrying that level of emotional kind of grief every single day. I, it's it's unfathomable. And, um, you know, pound for pound, there'll be athletes who obviously finished higher, but there's been no one who's been more impressive in Irish athletics than her this season. Wow. Yeah. Jesus, that is, uh, that's unbelievable, Carl. Thanks for telling us that. Uh, you also had an enlightening conversation with uh, Toby Amusan, the Nigerian athlete who's the reigning 100 metres hurdles world champion. Toby, just on, on the point of your fans, I guess a lot of them are probably wondering what led to the charge. Would you be able to like clarify the reasons behind that? I'm talking about my fans here. You're talking about charge. No, but I'm charges? also no. I'm asking the charge about the whereabouts violations, like because a lot of your fans and a lot of the athletics public. My name's Mr. Tata, I am done answering your questions. You asked the same questions like five times now. That's the first time I asked that question. Uh, a lot of people might have seen the clip you posted on Twitter earlier in the week. Can you give us the background and maybe also a little. Uh, uh, a, a sneak peek at your Twitter mentions over the course of the last uh, 48 hours or so. I don't think you want to know about my Twitter <laughs> mention. There's a lot of knife and uh, hammer emojis right, coming okay. at me <laughs> in the mentions currently and promises that if I'm met in the street, I'll be uh, delivered the justice I apparently deserve. Um, anyway, the other night, Toby Amazon, I'll try and summarize it quite quickly and not bore you with the details, but she recorded three whereabouts failures, which is essentially making herself available for drug testing. That could be if the drug testers knock on your door and you don't answer the door like you were supposed to, or it could be filing your whereabouts. If, say, she says, I'm in New York this week and she was actually in Texas, something like that, you know. Faulty so, doorbells. We're, we're familiar with exactly, the, with the you know, general concept. You yeah, know yeah. the score. Anyway, three of those in a 12-month period is generally a two-year ban if you rack them up. So she was charged in July with three of those. And she was temporarily suspended until the case was heard. They expedited the case. It was heard just before the World Championships by an independent tribunal. She was cleared. We don't yet know the details, but the Athletics Integrity Unit, which is responsible for anti-doping, said a very notable statement. They said they were disappointed with the decision and they were looking into whether or not to appeal. I went to a press conference with the two heads of the Athletics Integrity Unit the other night and Amusan was talked about a lot and they said they're waiting for the report and then they're going to decide if they're going to take it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and appeal the decision because they said it would set a very worrying precedent for anti-doping if that holds up the fact that she was cleared. We don't know the details around that yet, but as it stands, she's free to run. She's not convicted of anything, so we can't say she's guilty of any offence. I asked her the other night because she was obviously suspended for a number of weeks. Um, what did you? Oh, yeah. Basically, she was talking about the fans and some of the journalism. And I use that in inverted commas that's going on in the mix on here is pathetic and embarrassing. And it's not journalism. It's fawning. There's athletes starting interviews saying, I love you. You know, you're amazing. This, You're an inspiration. It's it's. I don't know what's happened to journalism and athletics, but there's very few actual journalists in that mix zone. And then she was talking, Toby, to an inverted commas journalist um, about her fans and how they stuck behind her. So I said, look, Toby, on the point of those fans, I suppose a lot of them are wondering what led to the charges. Can you give us any clarity or explanation on the reasons they took that case? And she immediately took offence, um, as she's kind of known to do. She's done it before when I asked her how she improved so much last year to win the world title. She kind of was immediately on the offensive. Um, and then she said, why are you asking me about the charges? I'm here talking about my fans. And I said, well, I'm sure your fans and the athletics public would like to know. And then she said, looked at my name tag and said, Mr. Catal, I don't have to answer. I'm not answering your questions. Um 
And then anyway, so I posted the clip online and said, look, people can make this what they want. You know, you can see her expression, you can see her attitude to it, and you can see whether or not she answered what, what I thought anyway was a very fair question. She's a national hero in, in Nigeria. You know, it is Michelle Smith levels, 1996 situation, you know, to take it to the current era, it could be like Katie Taylor, Kelly Harrington. She's on that level, Katie McCabe. Um, so she is so loved. So I fully expected a backlash. I've seen this before with Nigerian athletes. If there's any form of criticism, um, the fans will come, which is fair enough as they as they can and maybe they should. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of threats of physical violence and all sorts. But I think what was most disappointing and kind of concerning for me is that there was a number of journalists, again, inverted commas, who are here at the championships, who stood beside me in the mix zone going on Twitter. Um, one of them, a British female journalists uh, said, retweeted it and said, this is disgusting. And then she said, it's an example of the white media trying to racialize it. Essentially, even though I've asked the same questions of Galen Rupp, you know, Albert, other Alberto Salazar athletes who are white and American in the past. Um, and then there's another Nigerian journalist saying, you're an embarrassment, you know, you're irrelevant, this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I know some of the people who control the media here have been kind of observing some of those tweets and been like, that is not an acceptable way to treat your colleague in the mix zone. And the funny thing is, I'm standing there beside them. Not one of them would say it to my face because you could quite easily eviscerate them if it was an actual face-to-face discussion. Yeah. But they don't have the courage to do that. They go on Twitter and say, you're literally, you're disgusting for asking what essentially is a very fair question. Um, so... It speaks volumes, though, for the level of objectivity. And I mean by that, the lack of objectivity across the media. And I know one of the journalists from one of the biggest news outlets in the world and the most respected was sending me direct messages saying he's actually embarrassed by some of the questions that are going on here and people in the press conferences, which Kerry Richardson basically saying, I love you, you're amazing. And then barely even asking a question and applauding at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, whatever about... um questions about uh, PEDs or anything like that. Asking about whereabouts uh, violations is the easiest thing in the world. If you've got three uh, valid excuses as to why you missed your drug test, it's the easiest thing in the world. I mean, it, it's not a case of... Um, of you know trying to uh, you know prove prove a lie you know like a, an impossible thing all I can say is I didn't take drugs I mean when it comes to whereabouts it's here are the three reasons why I wasn't where I said I was supposed to be thank you to the uh, governing bodies for understanding where I'm from and let the court of arbitration for sport have at it but here's my story I'm glad you asked me yeah, I always find and, you know, we never know if an athlete's clean or dirty ever in the sport. Um, you know, even sometimes you could live with them and not know the truth. But like I, I would take the example of someone like Kira McGeehan and I've never met anyone who is in this sport, athlete, coach, journalist, who has any doubts about the legitimacy of Kira McGeehan's performance and her as a person. And I've... Kira McGeehan made a huge breakthrough last year, you know, and I was over in New York at the time of the Fifth Avenue Mile and she just won a Diamond League. So I was like, look, there are the odd person on Twitter who don't really follow the sport who are like, oh, she must be on drugs. Look at this big breakthrough. So I talked to Kira McGeehan. I was like, what do you, like, are you aware of people are asking questions now and you've got to a level where people, as it should be, make a big breakthrough, ask the question. And Kira was like delighted, perfectly polite, understands why you're asking the question and then talks at length about how she got to that point, the consistency that allowed her, why she wasn't running that time two years ago, and then gives you the full explanation and then also says stuff in the interview that you're like, this is how a clean athlete would speak in this. You know, you can see the anger 
that cheats cause her and what they've cost her in her career. And then you contrast that with other people. And I think clean athletes, if you give them a platform to talk about doping, they will always seize it and they will always welcome it and they'll understand the reasons you're asking. And because it is ultimately an opportunity for them to show what they think. And when an athlete tries to shut down a conversation or takes immediate umbrage at a question, it doesn't sit very well with me with what might be going on. Dervil, did you want to come in there? I have so many points. We're going to need at least two more hours, right? So <laughs> um, I don't know where to start. Okay, so I, for, from my experience, say of being an athlete, right? I was always disappointed when I didn't get asked about drugs. I was like, why does nobody think I'm taking drugs? Like, well, how fast <laughs> do I have to go? You know, like I think, and uh, we used to, it was a joke in my training group that how could I get people to think I might be taking drugs? Like, you know, so always back to the Kira thing. If you're a clean athlete, which I was, which Kira, I believe is, and again, back to Carl's point, you never know. Um, you never know with anyone and anything. Um, yeah, so... I loved those conversations, but not in a bitter excuse. So I hate I hate the conversations when it's like everybody's on drugs, the whole sport's filthy, because that is absolutely not true. And it, it makes me really upset because the sport has so much to give and so much to offer. And I think that blanket over the sport is it does it such a disservice. Um, but I think if you're a clean athlete, like you're in, like I'm I'm always interested in talking about all those bits and even now out completely out the other side. And I yeah, so so that's a point again, I find, like and if I if I were in a situation where I had something going on like that in terms of like the whereabouts and all that kind of stuff, like like. I just think ta taking offence to be asked about one of the biggest, I mean, you are the world record holder if you're Toby Amuzan, the world record holder, the, the defending world champion, and one of the biggest stories going into this world championships that you could potentially miss it for a three missed test or whatever it was, a whereabouts violation. Um, that is a story, you know, the story to me, it, that's not more interesting than your current hairstyle. Um, and, and like things, I also think there's a place for that. So this is my other thing. I think there's a place for that, what I'd almost call it like social media, new media, new digital aspect of the sport. And I think we're living in a completely different time to 10 years ago in that an athlete can story tell their own career very well now on social media and you can get other people to story tell you tell for you and you can almost be a marketeer of who you are as an athlete and but i think in that mix zone and in those situations i do think that that is um the place for journalists and for what Cahill does and, and and i'm not just saying this because Cahill's irish and you know he's an irish journalist but i will always go and read Cahill's pieces and a few other people's pieces because I think they come in it from a real journalistic perspective and I but I also enjoy some of the other stuff that's more lighter and that is it's a bit more lifestyle almost and so I think there I do think there's that fight between between media and how things are presented and I and I do also think the other side is you have that slight discussion that comes in on on welfare and athletes and you know, the places athletes might be in. And I definitely would have had points in my career where I was in a tough mental place. And some of the things I would have been asked in mixed zones, I would have found very hard to take. But I also, I guess, felt that was part of the game and something that I needed to develop a strategy to cope with. And I did. I went away. I worked as a psychologist 
And he said, you know, this is how I felt at certain times in a mix zone. Like, how do I how do I protect myself from from feeling like that, but also cope with it as a professional and as a grown up in the career that I've chosen to do? I was watching closely last night as Toby Amisan finished sixth and well out of the running in the women's 100 metres hurdles last night in any case. So that was the end of that story. Also big news in the GA world this week, which Ken was eager to find out more about. Inquisitive old boot that he is. Give me some context. context. You've got to remember, I don't know anything. Uh, yeah, and I do, I do forget that sometimes. But Jim McGinnis won the Ireland. I know, uh, not that much context. I know, I know that. What I mean is, where has he been in the last few years? What's what, what, what's the path that led him to back yeah. to the to the place where it all began? So after he won that All Ireland, he was hired by Celtic as a as a coach, as a kind of a performance coach. Mm. That was going to be two days a week, and he was he continued on in the job, the Donegal job. And then in 2014, Donegal beat Dublin, uh, the only team to beat Jim Gavin's Dublin in Championship football. Yeah. And uh, that was like just an extraordinary smash and grab job. They lost the Iron Final 12 days after the Iron Final that they lost to Kerry in 2014. He said he resigned as the Donegal manager and he took up uh, with Celtic full time. So stayed in Celtic for a number of years, had a spell in Beijing under Roger Schmidt, then went to Charlotte in the North American League. Um, neither of those spells really went went as well as uh, McGuinness was hoping for. Came back to Ireland, was working with the Derry City under-19s last year, managed them to a cup final win. But for the last couple of years, it's kind of nearly been a running joke that pretty much every League of Ireland job that was offered, Jim McGuinness's name would be briefly kind of thrown into the hat. Mm. Um, he never managed uh, you know, a senior team in the League of Ireland. Uh, did work, as I say, with Derry City last year. So the soccer experiment has been kind of... It's not a, an experiment. It was An like enriching a, you know, journey. A, a serious, yeah, I mean, it's been a qualified success in that... Do you know, d- this guy came from a Gaelic football background. You know, he's a Gaelic football player, Gaelic football manager. Uh, and he, you know, he did the UEFA Pro Licence um, and, you know, moved up to, with the, to a certain level in uh, soccer coaching... And maybe we all allowed ourselves to dream that the job he did with Donegal had transferable, and he it obviously did have some transferable skills. Um, but he's back as Donegal manager, and I just think it's an incredibly interesting time to be coming back to Gaelic football management. Um, the game itself is obviously stuck in a rut at the moment. People will say that it was Jim McGuinness that put it in that rut, um, but I'm prepared to look at it in a different way. Uh, I think you can make a fair argument that Jimmy Gaines might be the most influential coach in the history of Gaelic football. I mean, you're going to come at me with Kevin Heffernan. I know you are, Ken. I'd l- well, I'm going to stop you before you even I mean, say Kevin, the words. Kevin Kevin Heffernan breathed life into the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, re-established the GA as a force here in our nation's capital. Yeah. I mean, that's not nothing, Ken. It's not nothing. Um, but... but it- but but influenced it in an evil way. Uh, McGuinness. I mean, is this, <laughs> is, this not, is this not well not 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 heffo, No, I don't. No, I no. I uh, well, I think evil is definitely over uh, overstating. Is it overstating? It? I, mean, I mean, you know, if if we if we were talking uh, seriously about this, is that is that a word that would be thrown around in the in the GAA clubs and the bars? You know, I think that no. I think that he's led uh, Gaelic football astray. Uh, Kieran McGinney was on our TV show uh, one time. And he said to me after the show, I was talking to him about, I 
I could have, it could easily have been McGuinness. Um, and he, he said something ver- that always kind of stuck with me. He said, the, the, we used to have a situation where six players on the team didn't work and we don't have that anymore. It's the six players being the forwards, basically. Um, so that that day is done. And, uh, you know, to be fair, that probably makes a degree of sense, you know, that uh, that the, the defensive workload, I mean, we see it in, in all sports, really. Like the idea that you just kind of opt out of defending is not really a thing that's done in any serious Have sport. you seen a video so, of Lionel Messi um, recently? Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so there are like three players that don't, that don't work in football and all three of them were playing for PSG last year. But I mean, for the most part, uh, for the most part, you know, the workload is shared amongst uh, amongst the entire team. Uh, did so, you see that? There, um, there was a video. I'm, I'm just thinking of one Messi video in particular, which is just, there's like a minute 30 video I've been playing for for uh, Miami there, uh, which is just following him. You know, someone is like videoing him with yeah, their yeah. phone and it's honestly one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Just, <laughs> just in terms of, he's just walking around. You know, I mean, how many times have we talked about this? Uh, but yeah. it's, this is just the most exaggerated version of it I've ever seen because it culminates with him arriving onto the, like suddenly starting to run, arriving onto the ball and just lashing it into the roof of the net, like having done absolutely nothing, <laughs> having been nowhere near the game in any sense, just walking around. And then I see that he's advising one of the Miami players, they're like, oh, you know, have you had any tips for Messi? And he's like, he told me to just stand still more. <laughs> he says, he says, just stand still more. The ball will come to you. I don't think that's a transferable skill. Yeah, well, you yeah, know, yeah. Messi's... I don't think that's a transferable if you skill. Wait, you know, some, sometimes the ball comes to you. And, and uh, I don't know, though, if, every, yeah. if, if everyone else has quite the same gravitational pull on the ball uh, just in terms of yeah. but sorry uh, we're, get, we're getting sidetracked you know you, so you were telling me about Kieran McGinney, uh boasting about how they, they'd strapped Shergar to the ox cart in all of these Gaelic football <laughs> teams you know all, all of the most magnificent uh, prancing uh, stallions had been lashed mm. and, were, and were now working at the mill Turning, turning the wheel yeah. to to make Jimmy Guinness's flower. Okay, no, okay, that's the, we yeah. we're caught up to back to where we were. This Luciferian figure. All I will say, Ken, is that I think the game is in need of people who can move it forward, and I think that Jimmy Guinness is a person that can move the game forward. Mm. Uh, now, and I don't, I, I like, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, subscribe to the idea that he's a defense, like his teams played defensively, but I think he's he is actually just. A radical thinker, you know, like it, 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 there, there was, it, it went beyond just a tactical innovation. What he did, he made players do things that they knew would like genuinely shock people, you know, like the 2011 Iron semi-final that they ended up losing to to Dublin, like the tactical innovation he was suggesting was so severe that like he got all their phones and put it in like a Ziploc bag. Because he didn't want it to leave the like leave the room that he was explaining this uh, this innovation like in. a comedian. Like I just kind of feel like you have to do that when you yeah. Have to like a comedy so I, I just kind of feel like uh, yeah, that's exactly it. So I just kind of feel like yeah. I mean, now is a good good time to have Jim McGinnis back in back in Gaelic football. I don't. I don't and think listen, Jim, Jim McGinnis is evil. I'll tell you that I don't. No, I don't, I, I don't believe. I don't believe. I'm glad you cleared that I don't up. Believe. Even he does look a little bit like the devil. Uh, you know, in the sense that, like, if the devil was to assume human form and go around and try to tempt Gaelic football uh, down an evil path, he probably would look like Jimmy Innes. That is true. Um, oh, but no, I don't think it's evil to to try to look at things in a fresh way. I mean, the yeah. the interesting thing about Jim McGinnis, in a way, I mean, and I'm not trying to downplay his own 
significance as an innovator in this way, but is is how yep. long it took for Gaelic football to actually produce a Jim McGuinness. You know, why why, was, yeah. why did nobody try and do this before? You know, yep. I'm not saying that his That's exactly his way it. of doing things was like, oh, this is you know this is better or this is an advance, but it was different at least. This was like, you know, we, we're all sort of doing things the same way. What if we tried to do things a little bit differently? You know, maybe we could, and they end up winning the All Ireland. I mean, that's 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 brilliant. That's brilliant coaching. No matter what the, no matter what the style is, just the just the sort of yeah. leap of thought required to do it. Although you do have yeah. to wonder why you know uh, why they didn't do it before and and where the next uh, Jim McGuinness. Maybe maybe Jim McGuinness is the next Jim McGuinness. What do you what do you reckon? Yeah, is he well, going to blow us away with some some totally new innovation? I mean, he's been hanging out with Roger well, I, Schmidt, I by the way. Yeah, exactly. Roger Schmidt. Know? Like, so I, I mean, I would be of a mind to say you know that. Like, for instance, Deserby looks a lot more like the devil than Jim McGuinness is. Like, a lot. I don't think. I, I, mean, I don't like, think the devil. Like, what, the horse is an entirely different color on the devil. Deserby is like five, is five foot eight or something like that. I mean, yeah, but he's got, he's got the devil like extremely wouldn't be five foot eight. D- defined goatee fa- and facial hair. And, you know, if, if you look at the devil as represented throughout history, he usually does have extremely defined fish. Well, I mean, he, he, so. he usually, as represented, has, has like cloven feet and a, tr- and a trident and a, and a tail and, you know, ridiculous. I mean, ah, but when he I'm, takes human form, you're not, you're not taking this seriously. No, Ken. the, the devil not, you're, would you're, clearly be, you're not taking it seriously. would obviously be uh, a smouldering um, figure, uh, uh, someone like, Handsome someone like that, McGuinness, Handsome so, you know, a Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. type, you know, yeah. I think that's what he would... Um, that's just the, the role that I, I, you know, that's probably betraying my own, my own prejudices, but I feel that, that he would do that. Deserby, you know, nice I think he could, he could possibly be a devilish assistant, of some kind mm. of an, ar- okay. an archangel. Well, we'll, we'll agree to disagree. Mm. Uh, okay, that's pretty much it. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, uh, Murph. Thank you, Simon, for refusing to come on air to talk to us about Owen Farrell having a four game ban reinstated. He was probably right. He was right, wasn't he, Ken? Uh, who? Simon. Oh yeah, no. refusing to come on air to talk to us about Owen Farrell having a four-game ban reinstated. Yeah, he's probably. I was. Right. He was. I was reading yeah. about it in the Irish Times actually. Uh, Everyone's just had enough, you know. Okay, four games. Uh, can we just, as long as we're clear that this is the last of it now, that's fair enough. Well, uh, my my uh, th- my thinking on it was was clarified by an article in the Irish Times by my uh, my stable mate uh, mm. Owen Doyle. Uh, who, yes, who is a former. Uh, Referee, test referee. Yes. And his uh, his column about this uh, began, uh, well, it began, it, it certainly, it, it blew me away, the, the opening. Deep in Poland's Masurian forest, you'll come across Wolf's Lair, Adolf Hitler's bunker. Go on. I th- what? I thought, think this, is, this is an article about Owen Farrell. Adolf Hitler's, we're in Wolf's Lair. On July 20th, 1944, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg placed a bomb under the Führer's conference table, inflicting mighty damage. He failed, though, in his primary objective. The principal resident survived. Von Stauffenberg was subsequently executed for the attempt on Hitler's life. And now, almost 80 years later, World Rugby's newly constructed bunker has been rocked to its core by the explosive rescinding of Owen Farrell's red card. The damage and outrage have been caused by the Six Nations' appointed judiciary Chairman Adam Castleton, accompanied by two former players, John Langford and David Croft. I thought that... That's a lead. I mean, that is... That's genius, you know? Because not a lot of people would think of starting an article about Owen Farrell in the Fuhrer's uh, Wolf Slayer 
uh, on July 20th, 1944. Uh, so when you look at the analogy, you, you, you're like, okay, what, 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 you know, what, what is standing mm. in for what here in this analogy? And I suppose, hmm, bomb, mighty damage, residents survived, rocked to its core by the explosive rescinding of Owen Farrell's record. So Owen Farrell's red card is the, is the briefcase, Bob. Okay. The damage generation has been caused by the six stations appointed judiciary chairman Adam Castle and accompanied by two. I suppose this von Stauffenberg here is the six nations appointed judiciary. Yeah, in that, Chairman Adam uh, Castleton. Yeah, John okay. Yeah, these yeah, these are the, these are people one. who yeah. carried the bomb into the. Yeah, and then I suppose the Führer. I mean Adolf Hitler. I'm afraid in the analogy, I'm. I have to conclude is the sport of rugby itself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, who's tattered. Yes. Ta- ta- yeah, no, you're correct tattered, again. Tattered, bruised yeah. and tattered, but, uh, but still alive. Uh, still alive. Soldiers yeah, on alive. to the next challenge. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So Jim McGuinness is the devil. Uh, uh, rugby is Adolf Hitler. That, that's, in the la- that's just in the last five minutes. That's, that's where, we, that's where so, we've ended up like, this morning, Wednesday, 23rd yeah. of August. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You want to talk about a playmaker? Owen McDevitt. Owen McDevitt from Ireland's second captain show. That's a playmaker. Play, playmaker. The second captain's podcast. Oh, the second captain's podcast. It's finger licking good. Special. Special. Now, I'm going to tell you this too. I have been hurting. Because I have been having to tell the truth about second captain's show in Ireland. It's something finger licking good. Special. That's what I'm talking about. And they do look great because we got that finger licking ass right. Okay, that's pretty much it. Secondcaptains.com forward slash join if this has floated your boat in any way. Uh, and if it hasn't, well, why don't you just have a great weekend anyway, and we'll chat to you on Monday. Sloan Tomaline. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.
It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.